to invite all of the children who are here in the sanctuary to come and join me up here. And if you're worshiping at home, to move a little closer to your screens. I'm going to share just a moment together. Come on down. Good to see you. Wow, what a great group we have today. Oh, you have a turkey on your dress for Thanksgiving. Yay. We're going to talk about Thanksgiving a little bit today. Come on, there's plenty of room over here. All sorts of space. Welcome, everybody. So glad to see you in church today. And for those of you who are joining us from home, we're so glad you're with us, too. So there's a holiday coming up on Thursday. And what's it called? Thanksgiving. So it's a day when we give thanks. We give thanks to God for all the many blessings of our lives. And there's so much to be thankful for. I want to show you something. Okay, here I have a glass of water. Now, some would look at this and say, Aw, the glass is only half full. There's not enough water in there. But some might look at this glass and say, oh, look, the glass is half full. It's not half empty, it's half full. It's the same amount of water, but to one person it's like, oh, it's half empty. To another person it's like, oh my goodness, it's half full. I'm so grateful for this half full glass of water because I'm thirsty and I need a drink. Thanksgiving is a reminder that we have lots to be thankful for, and sometimes what makes the biggest difference is how we look at it. So I want to invite you this week to think about three things that you're thankful for in your life, and maybe tell one of your parents or a teacher or somebody the three things that you're thankful for. So let's pray together. Gracious and loving God, there's so much to be thankful for in our lives. Help us to see and be thankful. Help us to see the glass is half full instead of half empty. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you all so much for listening. If you are three years old, four years old, or five years old, you can go with Pastor Maggie to Children's Church. And if you're older than that, you can go back and sit with family or friends. And happy Thanksgiving. When I was growing up, maybe a little older than most of the kids who were up here this morning, one of my favorite shows on public television was The Electric Company. Does anybody remember The Electric Company? It was a little more electric and hyper than Sesame Street. It came on right after Sesame Street. But it was also an educational show to help kids learn their numbers and learn how to spell. And one of my favorite animated sketches on the electric company was The Adventures of Letterman. Anybody remember Letterman from Electric Company? So the evil villain in the story was the spellbinder. And he would take a word and remove a letter or change a letter. And the whole scene would change and things would get dangerous until Letterman came and fixed the word. So, for example, there's a scene where all these people are at the park playing outside and enjoying the light. But then the spellbinder comes and he takes away the L and he turns the light into night. 
oh no, everyone's bumping into each other and no one can see, until Letterman arrives and he changes the N in night back to an L in light and saves the day. There's also one about a man who owns a pickle factory and the spellbinder turns pickle into tickle and I'll let you imagine what that looks like. But it was a good way to learn how to spell. And it made me realize what a difference one letter can make. You may have noticed, if you've been worshiping here for a while, that every once in a while, from time to time in our liturgy, sometimes in my preaching, sometimes in a Monday meditation, I change one letter in a word. I drop the G from kingdom sometimes so that the kingdom becomes a kingdom. Now, this is not an original idea. I first encountered this when I was in seminary. We were talking about the theological reasons that that might be helpful to do sometimes. Now, to be sure, I don't want to drop the language of kingdom or the images of Christ as a king. They come to us through the scriptures. Jesus himself taught regularly about the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. Of course, kingdom is the English translation of the Aramaic or Hebrew word he would have used, but it was an image that he used in his teaching. And so, as his followers, we also need to embrace that imagery. And the church tradition has passed forward to us this Sunday when we celebrate the reign of Christ so often called Christ the King, when we as Christ's people acknowledge that he is Lord of our lives, Lord of the universe. So that King language is part of who we are and it's it's helpful and instructive. But at the same time, it can be a little problematic, at least for me. Because for me, and I think for many of us, the image of a King is very contrary to who Jesus was and is. When I think of a king, if I'm being honest, I think of King Henry VIII, <laughs> sitting up there on a big throne with, a, with elaborate robes that just exude wealth and power, power over others, a king and his subjects. There's a great distance between the king and the people. I think of a king who is interested in in maintaining his own power and even willing to to resort to violence or war to defend his borders or go and acquire more land for himself. And so if that is some of the stuff at work in my mind when I hear the word king, then I need some help to think about Jesus as a king. And so sometimes dropping that letter G can illuminate things in a new way. If we are talking about Jesus creating a kingdom, a family, where power is not power over, but but shared power and the power of love, where there's not a pyramid or a hierarchy, but a circle around a table with Christ as our host, just dropping that G helps me to understand that a little better. I also look at the the life and the teachings and the death and resurrection of Jesus, and I see how over and over again he eschewed this idea of being a king, at least in the earthly sense of the word. 
When he was first entering ministry, if you remember, he went into the desert for 40 days and he was tempted by the devil. And one of the temptations the devil put in front of him was, I will give you power over all the nations of the world. In other words, I'll make you king over the world. And Jesus rejected that. No interest in power over others or in that kind of power. In the middle of his ministry, when he feeds the multitudes with the loaves and the fishes, in John's gospel, the crowd comes back to him and they want to capture him and make him a king. They want to put a crown on his head. And he runs away from them. He doesn't want to be a king in the way they want him to be a king. And in his final hours, when he stands before Pontius Pilate, Pilate asks him point blank, are you a king? And Jesus says, you say that I'm a king. Avoiding the question, perhaps. And then he says, my kingdom is not of this world. Jesus' kingdom is unlike any other kingdom we have ever experienced on earth, any other kingdom than we can imagine, a different kind of kingdom than many of us, including myself, would really choose. We get another glimpse of the kind of king Jesus is in our scripture reading for today. We see on either side of this story about the dinner table, the powers of this world jockeying for position. At the beginning, we hear that the religious leaders are conspiring against Jesus, trying to have him killed with, you know, behind the scenes. We didn't hear this part, but right after this story, Judas gets up from the table and goes to betray Jesus to them. Maybe Judas is wanting Jesus to be a different kind of king who will come and assert political power or will rise up in violence to drive out the Romans. And when Jesus is proving himself not to be that kind of king, maybe it's enough for Judas to get up from the table and betray him. But in between these two chambers of political power, Jesus is at the dinner table in the home of a man named Simon the leper. Jesus is not dining with Pilate. He's not in the palaces of Herod. He's not sitting at a table with anybody important who has any power in the community. He's sitting in the home of a leper, someone who has been an outcast from the community. And while he sits there, a woman comes into the room. We don't know her name. We do know she's breaking a lot of decorum by coming into the room. Women were not allowed to dine at the table with men. If they were coming into the room, it was to serve food. They would eat later or eat in a different room. But this woman walks into the room because she has an offering to make to Jesus. She pours out this very expensive ointment, a year's worth of wages this ointment is worth, and she anoints Jesus' head. Now what the men in the room see is a great waste. They see a glass half empty. They cannot believe what a waste this woman has made and how that money could have been used. But while they are criticizing her and scolding her, Jesus defends her. And what we see in this moment 
whether it's what the woman meant or not, is a coronation. You see, back in the day, it was a prophet who would anoint the head of a king, Samuel anointing the head of Saul, the head of King David. And here we have Jesus in the home of a leper being anointed by an anonymous woman as a king like no other king. And to make matters even clearer about who Jesus is, he says, she is anointing me for my burial. This is a king who is about to give himself away, who is about to empty himself for the sake of the world, who will be lifted up in his moment of glory on a cross with a crown of thorns. And there are very few at the cross who will understand this means he is a king like no other. So, my friends, if this is our king, if we are citizens of Christ's kingdom, what does that mean for us and how we live and move in the world? In a world where there's always jockeying for power and position and power over others. In a world where there are hierarchies, where some are outcast and excluded and anonymous. How do we, as the kingdom of God, live differently? Well, I can share with you just a few glimpses of the kingdom that I've seen just in recent days. A few weeks ago, I got an email from my friend and colleague, Jay Voorhees. Some of you know Jay. He's a pastor in the conference. And it came to his awareness that there are people who die on the streets of Nashville with no family, nobody to conduct a funeral for them. And so he's put together a, a group of pastors, I signed up, who would be ready on short notice to go to the city cemetery and conduct a service for those who die with no one. I've not yet had the privilege of doing that. But I want you to know that there are United Methodist pastors who are going to the city cemetery once, twice, three times a week and calling the names and saying prayers for citizens of God's kingdom who have been forgotten and lost. That's the kingdom of God. I think about our friends James Sewell and Bill Miller who go every month, sometimes more than once a month, to the prison, Riverbend Maximum Security, to, to preach the gospel, to share communion, to be in friendship and relationship with the men who've been incarcerated there for so long. They don't get any bonus credits for that, right? But it's living out the calling to be citizens of the kingdom of God, to gather around a table with the least and the lost and the forgotten. How does this look in your own life? What are ways that you are called to claim your citizenship in the kingdom of God, to live in a way that looks different from the rest of the world? that can be a beacon of light and love for the rest of the world.
Today is the reign of Christ Sunday, Christ the King Sunday. We are gathered in this place to declare that Jesus is Lord, Lord of our lives, Lord of the church, Lord of heaven and earth. So let us go forth from this place to live as kin with all God's people and to live the light so that the kingdom of God may come upon the earth as it is in heaven. Amen.